Coming up on this episode of Back in My Play, I am joined by John Linneman of Digital Foundry and Peter Brown from GameSpot.com as we remember and revisit Super Metroid. But before we get into that, just a couple quick notes. First off, if you haven't followed me, I'm actually opening up a new gym, and that has taken up a lot of my time. But I still want to make sure that Back in My Play continues on because I love doing it and hopefully you love hearing it. So the show is going to be going mostly towards an every other week format, shooting for covering 12 games a year, and then doing 12 interviews going forward. There may be more. There's opportunities for that for sure. But I just want to temper your expectations because opening up a you know a new business on your own and you know having to be there and get the job done is going to take up the predominant amount of my time. But if you want to support Back of My Play going forward on a per-episode basis, you can go to patreon.com slash play. Every little bit helps and allows me to set aside more time so more episodes can get produced. So thank you so much to all those Patreons at patreon.com slash play. Thank you so much for tuning in, supporting the show over the years, and hopefully you continue listening as we go forward. But without further ado, let's talk about Super Metroid. The last Metroid is in captivity. The galaxy is at peace. Hello, welcome back to Back in My Play. My name is Kevin Larrabee, and we are going to be talking about, potentially, for a lot of people... The greatest video game of all time. We're talking about Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo and Super Famicom. And along with me for this episode, I have two incredible guests. First, coming back all the way from Germany, we got John Linneman of Digital Foundry and, of course, Digital Foundry Retro, that awesome video series that uh, is usually what I watch during breakfast on Sunday mornings. It's a fantastic cool. series, John. Thank you very much, Kevin, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, and this is going to be fun because I obviously like. I think what is always cool about having John on is is also talking about like the technical technical aspects of uh, you know what these developers were doing graphically, and Super Metroid was doing a lot of cool things. And also, it's been way too long since I got back on Skype with Peter Brown of Gamespot.com. Peter, how are you? I am very good. Good morning, guys. Yeah, it is. It is definitely the morning, uh, especially for for Peter. It's morning for Peter, night for John. You know, yep. <laughs> get, getting closer to noon for me. Thank you, Skype, for being great about this long distance conversation. But I, I'm super pumped to talk about this because uh, why well, won't get into it just yet? Just some quick notes before we we of course break and go through all the segments. Uh, first, you know, thanks everyone for your patience. Uh, you know, took a couple of weeks off from the show, like three weeks off from the show, uh, because some scheduling issues and also like, to be honest, like it's always really good to take a little bit of a break to just kind of recharge and get away from this stuff. Uh, because as you guys know, like at, at the end of the day, like it's always about making sure that every single episode lives up to the back of my play quality standards. So like, I don't want to just push out an episode for there be an episode on on a Friday and stuff like that, uh, but I do do my best to try to schedule all this stuff. Uh, and hopefully, you had a, a little bit of a high note with that Ed Freeze interview, which of course John was also on. Incredible feedback uh, from that, John. That was a that was a really good time. That was a great episode. I enjoyed that a lot. 
And of course, I, 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 I will mention, like, this is a Super Nintendo game. What's going on with the summer of Xbox? Don't worry. We're just, we're going on vacation. Like, sometimes the summer is great. It's, the weather's fantastic. But sometimes you want to just get away and you want to go somewhere else for a little bit. And that's what we're doing with Super Metroid. We're going to be back next week. Or maybe it's, it's probably going to be next week or in the next week or two with a, a really cool episode that is uh, a long time in the making to put together. I'm getting the authors of the big segment from the, I think it was EGM November 2001, GameCube versus Xbox, Mark McDonald and Crispin Boyer are going to be on to talk about that. So it's going to be a lot of fun and again, connecting a lot of different time zones uh, for that one. And then we're going to finish up the summer of Xbox with, uh, I think I can tease this, Panzer Dragoon Orta. And also a superhero of Back of My Play, basically producer of the show at Back of My Play, Ryan Payton, was also recently out in Tokyo and did an interview with, I believe, the producer of Panzer Dragoon Orta. So he is getting that translated right now. And then we're going to have that for the show too. So it's just insane. It's, it's probably the best way to, to finish up the, the summer of Xbox. That doesn't mean we're going to not talk about Xbox stuff, uh, but I think it'll be fun to kind of mix things up because I'm sure there's some people like, yo, they, they're talking about the Xbox again this week. I kind of, uh, you know, am, am, am done with that. So we'll mix things up. And of course, there's, there's plenty of games. We still have to do Fusion Frenzy. Uh, that's going to be, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not going to do that. <laughs> But yeah, again, thanks for your patience. And again, uh, thank you to all the Patreons for supporting the show. They're getting lots of great stuff, like a bunch of Back My Play uh, radio episodes. Those have been fantastic to do and been getting incredible feedback. And of course, uh, lots of cool stuff up in there, patreon.com slash backmyplay, including a bonus segment for about 20 minutes at the end of this episode just for the Patreon. So make sure you listen after the end of the music. Now, without further ado, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with the history of Super Metroid. Stick around. Let's talk about the history of Super Metroid. So 
this game, this, I mean, when we talk about Nintendo games, when we talk about Super Nintendo games, the history is extensive, especially for, you know, franchises like Metroid, because there are super fans out there that will dig super deep into the history and the development of games like this. But we're not going to get super deep. We'll kind of get as, as deep as we need to for the discussion. But I'm sure there's going to be people out there, oh, you guys didn't even talk about this. No, I got you. I understand that. And we just do our best to kind of just give people a little bit of a setup before we get into the rest of the show. So Super Metroid came out in Japan first on March 19th, 1994. It came just a month later in North America on April 18th, 1994. And of course, this was developed by Nintendo R&D 1 and Intelligent Systems. So when this game was being teased and, and things like Nintendo Power, that's when I first heard about it. When I saw on the coming soon list, remember at the end of the issue, you'd always see like, you know, coming soon, what was going to be coming next. It was always titled Metroid 3 because when you know, this time uh, was happening. We already had Metroid 2 on on the Game Boy, so it just made sense. Why would you you just go, you know, Metroid from the NES, Metroid 2 to the Game Boy, and then Metroid 3 on the Super Nintendo, even if it wasn't always the case with these franchises. Like, Super Mario is a perfect example. You got Super Mario Land on the Game Boy and the portable uh, hardware, and then you got Super Mario World on the... Uh, Super Nintendo, and of course, Super Mario Brothers 3, and et cetera, on the NES. But uh, this team at R&D 1 was 15 people. This is, again, 1994, so it's just amazing what 15 people were able to do back then. And it was led by Gunpei Yokoi, which is... I, I, didn't even know that until we got I got into doing the research uh, for this. But of course, like Gunpei Yokoi, uh, you know, big guy, hardware at Nintendo for, for years, uh, the Game Boy guys, like, oh yeah, the and the Wonder Swan. Let's give a shout out to that Wonder Swan. One of these days, we'll do Summer Wonder Swan. Um, but you know, again, uh, a really vital piece of our person in the history of of video games. So the really interesting end, uh, if you want to believe in comp- uh, conspiracy theories. But again, Gumbai Yokoi working on Super Metroid. I uh, was directed and written by. Uh, Yoshiro uh, Sakamoto, and then produced by Makoto Kano. Uh, and, and this game took a year to get approval for just the initial idea from Nintendo. Like Nintendo doesn't, it's not a company of necessarily moving fast in 2017. Definitely wasn't back in 1994 either. Uh, and the actual development took two more years to complete after they got the approval. And when they were asked why it took so long to get the game made, uh, they said that they are to even get started. Uh, Sakamoto said we wanted to wait until a true action game was needed. When it's kind of like, uh, you know, when when a villain appears, so will a hero kind of <laughs> thing, I guess. Uh, and also, they wanted to make sure that they did uh, appropriate job setting the stage for the reappearance of Samus Aran again. You know, the Game Boy. I, I think what Metroid Two would have been nineteen ninety two, right, or nineteen ninety one. Maybe even 1990. I'll have, to, I'll have to double check that while we're kind of going through this stuff. Um, yeah, I think it was actually 1991. Yeah, it sounds, I think 2. that sounds right. Um, man, I played a lot of that on my Super Game Boy. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, the developers decided to break the game up into many, many adventures to accommodate the, the large map, something that we'll definitely get into in the coming segments. So the composers uh, for the uh, soundtrack of Super Metroid, which, by the way, was actually released uh, by Sony Records in 1994. So if you want to get, if you want to like, you know, 
go out to Tokyo, go out to Japan, and you want to spend a couple afternoons searching through, you know, used CD stores and stuff like that, you know, see if you can track down a copy of the Super Metroid soundtrack. Yeah, it is. It's worth a lot of money now. So if you find <laughs> one, uh, hopefully you're not going to overspend on it. Um, but Mikano Hamano and Yoshiro Sakamoto both worked on the soundtrack. And, and Sakamoto, uh, you know, legendary in, in Nintendo, worked on a, a ton of different uh, soundtracks in Nintendo. It is a name that you should look up. And again, just be like, man, there's all these names that are not Koji Kondo that also did incredible music for Nintendo over the last couple decades. Oh, yeah. It, it, and again, according to uh, Yamamoto, uh, excuse me, Yamamoto, uh, he came up with the game's theme by humming it to himself while riding his motorcycle from work. In addition to composing music, Yamamoto, uh, Yamamoto served as a sound programmer and created sound effects for the game, which I think makes a lot of sense when you see a lot of the you know, like cohesion over the years, especially like... I always kind of go back to some of the best sound design and music in recent generations uh, has been Marty O'Donnell uh, when he was over oh, yeah. at Bungie, right? When he was like not only doing the soundtrack, but he was also doing all the sound effects and he was doing like all the voice work and stuff like he did, you know, he, you know, oversaw all that stuff. So, you know, th thinking yeah, of programming real quick. So, I yeah. mean, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this game is the fact that it was mostly programmed by intelligent systems, rather than Nintendo itself. I mean, they're kind of connected at the hip, but, right. you know, it's this was like their maybe their third Super Famicom game, and they did a Fire Emblem before this, and then a couple of those, like, Super Scope games, mm. I think. <laughs> oh, they worked and on so, the like, Super Scope stuff? <laughs> yeah, like Metal, whatever that one is, you know. Oh, uh, is it, it's uh, like, it's not Metal Wolf Chaos, no. No, Metal Clash? Yeah, yeah Metal yeah, Clash. Something like that, Metal Clash, exactly. That They worked on that, so... But since this started so early, I guess they worked on it for so long. This was probably one of the first games that they really put a lot of effort into programming for the Super Famicom. Yeah, well, you got to get started on like you know the Super Scope, <laughs> and yeah, then you, know. <laughs> you got you to really you know earn your rank you know making games for that six and one that they packed in with that thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, intelligent systems, of course, like obviously have, have been awesome work. Yeah. yeah. Awesome work, you know, again, for, for, for decades, they're, they're one of the, uh, longstanding incredible Japanese developers, uh, out there. And, you know, the, the game itself went on to sell quite a bit, uh, especially in North America. I was a million seller here and it was part of the player's choice lineup. I mean, I think this is one of the anecdotes that is brought up whenever Metroid is talked about is, you know, when you look at these franchises compared to how they sell in North America versus how they sell in, in Japan or even in, in Europe, um, Metroid has always really been more of a, you know, North American franchise. Like it seems to sell sure. much better in North America than it does in Japan, which, you know, again, we can we can always debate on why that is. Uh, but I know it's it's cool. And it was cool like to... Sorry for rambling and going off on a tangent for a second, but uh, this was again. You guys were both at E3, but I, I got I was literally I was sitting in my house. I ordered a large pizza. I ordered uh, I had a twelve pack of of, of Coke uh, Zero Cherry, and I sat back and I watched these these conferences and I watched uh, you know the the reaction from all this stuff. And one of the best things that I saw was uh, they actually did the Nintendo Direct stuff also in their store in New York City. And, of Ooh. course, when you do that, you're going to get the most hardcore of hardcore 
you know, fans to, to show up to something like that, dress up as their favorite characters and, you know, holding on to their switches and 3DSs and stuff. And uh, one of the best reactions, like akin to the, you know, Blades Will Bleed introduction of a new Zelda game at E3, like whatever it was in 2001 or two, was the Metroid logo popping up and just seeing the the audience just absolutely flip out even more so, like way more so than, than Mario Odyssey, which uh, I guess makes sense. It's been a while since we saw, saw a Prime game, but I can... Say what you want, man. I, I can still always get I can get a huge grin on my face when I see stuff like that. I, I love to see that stuff. Yeah, I love it too. It's fantastic. <laughs> Peter, it really brings I mean, up lots of excitement. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was gonna ask both you guys, like for for Peter, like just talking about you know the the reaction from what it was like at E three when because Nintendo pretty much only brought uh, like Mario, right? Like they only had one game that was like playable. There is that is that right, or did they also have Splatoon? They had a couple games that were playable, um, but the big showcase was Mario for sure. But I, yeah, there were some people from GameSpot who got to play uh, the Metroid remake. Oh, we're definitely going to talk about that too. But that yeah, that was the thing is like you know they they announced that on on the stream, and then after like as part of like Nintendo's YouTube stuff, they then announced Samus Returns, like the remake for. Metroid 2 for the, of course, the 3DS, a console that no one wants to play games on anymore. But, um, you know, that's that's where it's going to be coming because we can't have it. It was like it was like a couple days ago when they were announcing a new Stargate, like Stargate's back. And it's like a 10 episode, 10 minute long miniseries. I'm like, come on, guys. Um, can't can't have it. Can't have it our way. Uh, the game was also bundled with the, the, the SNES, I should should mention, uh, in North America, which is how a lot of people had probably sold upon the game and didn't even know about Metroid, but they got to play it uh, that way. But I, I mean, was there any energy around uh, Metroid Prime 4 at E3 for you guys? Or was a lot of the talk seemed to be around uh, Samus Returns, John? Uh, well, for me, I mean, they kind of announced it. They, they let us know ahead of time what was coming on. And the big issue, though, is everybody was very, very excited about the prospect of Metroid Prime 4, but there isn't really a lot to know about it right now, right? They didn't Sick show any gameplay. Logo. Yeah, the logo looks awesome, but it's like, okay, we're <laughs> excited that this exists, but, you know, what more is there to say right now, right? <laughs> so I, I wonder, you know, Reggie, Reggie wore a Metroid pin or something like that on a yeah. game, of the, game of the year show, and I think, you know, maybe he's like, you guys, it's been in development for five years. We've been we're ready to go. It's going to be a great game. We'll see what happens. Um, but hell, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Metro is awesome, and uh, the fans are great, and they are probably the most neglected fans in in video games, most likely. Uh, but they'll be happy because they're getting two more Metroid games in the, the coming years. Um, let's do this. Let's let's take a break um, because let's just get right into it. We're going to go back to 1994. We're going to be talking about the like prime time of the Super Nintendo. God, there's like 1994 is like if you want to look at incredible years in video games, look at 1994. Uh, some incredible stuff was coming out late, uh, late year SNES games, late year Genesis games. You're getting awesome stuff on the Sega 32X, which John will have a video for you. Jeez, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, but we'll get back to 1994 in just a minute. Stick around. 
we made it all the way back to 1994. I don't know about you guys, but my bedroom is plastered with posters from Nintendo Power. I just got a sick VHS in the mail telling me about Donkey Kong Country in this new like real-time graphics engine from Rare. I'm really pumped about that. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we're also getting great games like Super Metroid that are actually in stores or at our uh, favorite place to rent tapes and games. But I want to throw it off to to you first, Peter. Back in 1994, what what were you playing at the time? Were you looking forward to Super Metroid? Was this on your radar? It was not on my radar. I so that was the period that I hate bringing up because, in retrospect, I'm disappointed it was the truth. But I was sort of um, ignorant of Nintendo stuff between like late '90 to maybe like 95, 96. Um, cause I was a Genesis kid and nothing wrong I with that. Of, you don't have to, you don't have to feel ashamed about that. There's some great well, things in the Genesis. Uh, yes, but I don't, I don't even think that I was well aware of those great games back then. I was playing <laughs> a lot of crap to be honest. I was playing, I'd say more games on PC that I really liked at that time. Um, but no, I, I had my friend, uh, Andrew Steyer, who I bring up, I think every time we talk about <laughs> Nintendo stuff, and he was the Super Nintendo guy, so I leaned heavy, heavily onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I knew Metroid growing up; like I played it on the NES. Um, so I would essentially play Super Metroid with him at his house mm-hmm. um, when that came out, and it was a nice surprise that I I didn't really see coming at the time. Um, yeah, it was a couple of years later that I finally picked up the game for myself and really, you know, uh, made it a part of my life forever because it's it's definitely one of my favorite games of all time at this point. But isn't that like even almost like better sometimes when there are these like I, I always look back to, you know, games that I've done for the show here, like, you know, your journey to Silius is or even like weird stuff like Shin Shinobi Den, which I ended up like loving uh, where it's almost like, man, I can't believe this game was there all along or like this movie was there all along or this CD or this band was there, you know, for years that I totally miss. It's almost like, you know, discovering some like you know, lost treasure. It's almost even like even better because you also, you weren't having to like stress out about being able to get it or like, you know, find it in stores and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, and by the time that I finally got it as well, I was sort of beginning to think like, huh, maybe I'll collect, you know, old video games cause or not even old at that time, but just I'll collect video games. Cause I started to see, uh, you know, prices dropping on things. Right. Um, and so when when that began, one of the first things I picked up was uh, Super Metroid. And my parents used to drag me um, away from my home in the summer <laughs> to to like a, a Cape cottage, which now I would kill to go to. But as a kid, you know, taking me away from my friends was the last thing I wanted. Right. So I would just I just hold up and played Super Metroid for the first week while I was there. And that just it totally kickstarted my summer and totally got me even more curious in the Super Nintendo library. That's that that's something I, I wanted to bring up because, you know, the game came out in, in April in, in North America. So I'm sure like a lot of kids, you know, maybe they got it like around launch or maybe they got to rent it or whatever. But like this seems to be like the perfect and this is probably some people are in here just be like, you're nuts. But I think it's like one of the perfect like what I would think of as summer games. It's like your Final Fantasy three where like there's there's no stress. There's no don't worry. Like you could literally just spend you know, the whole afternoon inside with some like crystal light and just chill out and just explore the world of, of Super Metro. Like that's probably the best way to experience it is to not 
you know, not even have a guide, but just to feel like I don't need to worry about it. I can just kind of relax and just, you know, explore at, at my own pace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, th- and that's um, that's exactly what I did because I got lost <laughs> very, very very quickly uh, when I first played Super Metroid. I think I, it took me uh, 15 hours to beat it at that point. Um, oh, that's that's that sense. I mean, that's probably about right for the because there's there's a lot of weird stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about for like you know invisible walls and things that like you just need to bomb everywhere and just figure out where to go. Yeah, there, I think I didn't have the right mindset because this was, I mean, even though I had played Metroid, it didn't, I don't, I don't, I feel like Super Metroid is a little bit more demanding of your spatial awareness or even just your tenacity for yeah. exploring every inch of your environment. So I really wasn't used to anything like that at the time. Um, you know, now the game is something, you know, take care of in just a handful of hours. But, um, but yeah, it was something special back then. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about like the, the idea of exploring and even like just like spatial awareness in this game because I think that is something really important to go a little bit more in depth on. Maybe not in this segment, but maybe in the, the next segment, which is probably going to be our super long one. Um, John, how, how about you? Do, were you uh, a Super Metroid like diehard back then? Were you making <clears> sure that you were you know waiting to, to get the first copy that, that showed up in town? Not exactly, but close. So I my first Metroid game was actually Metroid 2 on the Game Boy, not the original Metroid. I had not even played the original NES game at that point. So, but I was Same really here. into Metroid 2, despite the fact that you know, looking back, people were like, oh, well, it's not that great. What? When Super, Come on, Super Metroid 2's. I mean, Metroid 2's uh, awesome. <laughs> Metroid 2 is awesome. I love it. I mean, it's more linear than than you know Super Metroid, but it's still it's got a weird atmosphere. That game, it's pretty impressive for the Game Boy. That was a summer game for me. I beat that oh, on yeah. uh, on my red Game Boy Pocket, like in nineteen. Oh God, it might have been like it would have been uh, Pokemon years. It would have been like when when Pokemon was coming out. But yeah, was, man, that's that's the way. So yeah, so. Uh, when 1994 came around, I first saw it in an old uh, chain that's called Service Merchandise. So I went up there, played it at the store for a while, and was absolutely blown away. But at the time, I was like starting to get into PC gaming. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually get a copy of it for like two or three years after that. Man, both you guys and are cool with your – what do you have? Guys have Pentium, Pentium like 100s? You got like 100, 100 megahertz on there? Well, I think at that time it was just a 486, like all a right. DX266. You know, it was it was all right. It got the job done, but you know, I was getting ready for some games on there. But then, yeah, so I picked up Super Metroid then, like two or three years later, and I still have that copy here with the box, and it's in pristine condition. Wow! But it's a uh, <laughs> it's the player's choice version. But hey, you know, because <laughs> that's what that that's what was available at the time, right? So, it was cheaper, man. It, it was it yeah. was forty bucks. Exactly. So, yeah, then for me, it was just, um, I also kind of played it on holiday. I took, uh, the super NES down to Florida. So we, we would go down <laughs> to like Siesta key or something that kind of like Sarasota area often every year for like a vacation. And I just brought the super NES and hooked it up to the TV. This is the same way I would go on to play Castlevania symphony of the night, by the way, <laughs> it kind of became the Metroidvania trip. So, you know, I'm just sitting there like, by these big glass doors, there's the ocean out there to the left, and I'm just like <laughs> playing Super Metroid on this TV and like Love really, it. really super into it. Like it was just, you know, because yeah, at home it was like PC games, but then on the road it's like, well, I can just take this with me. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was my first real experience delving into it. And because of the fact that, you know, you play it on vacation like that, 
it really kind of sticks out in your head. You know what I mean? I, yeah, totally. It's I, like, like, oh, I, this was a great time. And it's like, I, I, for me, I remember the negotiations I used to have with my parents about like <laughs> bringing the like TV console on on vacations and stuff. Like when they were able to make these decisions, it was, oh, well, we don't want you to bring that because then you won't want to, you know, we're going to Cape Cod or something like that, or we're going to Maine. Like we want to make sure that you're, you know, not wanting to stay <laughs> in the whole time. You're not going to have time to play this game at all. So why would you want to bring it? You got your Game Boy in a, in a Game Gear or whatever. You're like, you don't need to bring another thing but they don't understand it's like no it's because the game that i need to play right now it's only on this like i need to play this yep. game um so yeah i, I t- man that was probably the most embarrassing one was we went to orlando and i brought a playstation one with nice. with uh and it was oh my god that's i don't think i've ever told the story so i brought a playstation one and i wrapped it in a black plastic bag with the controllers in the game, <laughs> into my and put it in my bag, and then I wrapped the black plastic plastic bag around in duct tape. Uh, so going through security, this would have been two thousand and two thousand, maybe nineteen ninety nine. Wasn't nine eleven yet, uh, but still through like security, they opened up my bag because it's like, dude, you can't wrap stuff in a black plastic bag and then wrap a bunch of duct tape around it. Like that looks nefarious like you cannot do that um but i had to because i needed to be able to play duke nukem time to kill oh. wow i was in oh. orlando <laughs> i had to play duke nukem time to kill man i just bought it like come on like i just like i bought it and it was like it was back then when i got some like weird deal on like it was probably eb games or like babbage's or something like that where it was i ordered it online so it took like two weeks to get to my house i'm like it's finally here I need to bring my PlayStation with me. I've been waiting two weeks for this game. I got to get it. So, uh, yeah, that was that's that's looking back. That was kind of shameful. Um, <laughs> geez. Uh, any, anyways, uh, so it, you brought up Metroid too. That's kind of something that I want to kind of bounce off with a, a yeah. little bit too, because um, not only was like I, I finally ended up beating it in like '99, but I played a lot of that back in you know the early days, probably like '92, definitely before. Uh, Super Metroid because it was you know games were cheaper on on the Game Boy it was like just a lot of times it was you know what do your friends have when you're trading games back and forth like one of my friends just happened to have Metroid 2 and like I was able to start up a save that was rather deep into the game and, and get my first Metroid fix uh, that way but for me like I was really and I've done this a couple times I did this with Final Fantasy 3 unfortunately too but um with with us back then, like we had very few games. Like I think at most, like throughout the life of the Super Nintendo, we had like five games in the house because we did a lot of rentals. Like we just didn't have oh, yeah. we didn't have the money to 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 buy uh, a bunch of games. So it was rentals and it was trading games back and forth with your friends. Like you know, not trading for keeps, but trading trading for rentals. Like if you want to trade for keeps, you got to get the parents involved in this negotiation too. We just don't want to do that. So. I ended up renting this through my, you know, my local uh, photographics and there was a save on it that was already at the end of the game. So I ended up like when I brought it home, I played Super Metroid and I beat the game like, you know, 10 minutes into the first time ever playing the game. Uh, And I ended up going back to it again over and over over the years, but I never finished it because I knew what the end was. And then at some point, like Peter was saying, 
you just like get turned around or you don't know where you are and the map system is not super great because you can see your map but then you can't really see the whole map right so yeah right you you can't really get a good idea unless you're you know someone cool and you have the Nintendo player's guide for Super Metroid which again I didn't have so I ended up like going back to it over and over again over the years like every time like I would you know whether it was just like you would it would find I'd find it at a yard sale or something like that, or you'd be playing it on emulation on a on a computer or something like that, and you just get far enough to where like, all right, now I'm confused. I'm going to move on to something else because I'm an adult <laughs> and I have a lot of games, and you know it's great, but I already know how this story ends, so I never really got to finishing it until wait till next segment. So uh, for me, it was always Metroid Two, and the the that was the one Metroid game that I finished, and also the other one which was like kind of my real Super Metroid was Zero Mission on the Game Boy Advance. Oh, right. Hmm. Um, and I was, like, obsessed with that game. Like, I played that, like, in college, like, for, like, a whole weekend. Like, I just sat inside my dorm room, you know, talking about, dude, you're at college. Like, you could be doing anything, and you're in your dorm room playing <laughs> Game Boy Advance. Like, God, no wonder, you know, I, I did all right. But, I, you know, it could, it could have been a lot more fun there <laughs> at college at times. So, um, the... You know, again, like um, I thought, all right, well, I got like my Metroid experience through through that. I don't necessarily need to 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 go back and do Super Metroid. And this is an unfortunate thing throughout my life, where like uh, a lot of these games, whether it be the the Castlevania games on the DS, which are outstanding, but I get so far and then I just you get stuck, and then you move on to to something else. Um, I think this is probably kind of the right balance of. And again, we'll talk about it more in the next segment of like the the Metroidvania, where it's not it's not too long, it's not too short, it's kind of like the right kind of kind of spot. But if I had to talk about a favorite one, one that I got to start to finish and didn't stop, like from you know release day, it was Shadow Complex. Like Shadow Complex was my Super Metroid. Wow, really? I mean, I've heard that from other people as well, but. That's uh, it is a good game. I haven't played it in a while, though. Have I think, you played it since then. Yeah, it's on backwards compatibility. Does it still hold up? Yes, it's it. Well, I mean, awesome. It, and it was like it was my first uh, Nolan North game because I didn't have a PlayStation oh, Three. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, I got a little. I could have Nathan Drake on my Xbox Three Sixty, but like for for real, like that was like Shadow Complex is Super Metroid. Like it, especially after now that I finished Super Metroid, like. You look at all the items, the pickups, the even some of the boss battles. Like it was yeah, so right. awesome how they they were able to kind of just like westernize Super Metroid to a certain extent. Like not talking about the prime stuff, but like the two D, you know, Metroid setup, and they hit it out of the park so much, which makes it worse and worse every single time you see a new was it Infinity Blade? The, that's the other yeah, game that they Infinity made. Blade. They make another Infinity Blade, but. Yo, Microsoft, like, open up your pocketbooks. Like, give them $20 million to make Shadow Complex 2. I don't care if it's only costing them $5 million to develop. Like, give them what they need because if you want people to – it's probably not going to be a system seller, but damn, like, I want another Shadow Complex from that team so bad. And, that you know, they kind of helped kickstart sort of, as they might say, the Metroidvania revolution, right? Like, yeah. We, we knew about these types of games. Castlevania was still coming out on GBA and DS and all that, but it wasn't really 
what it is now, where you have all these indie developers creating like from their memories and like their love indie, of those It was like games. indie venue because they, then you didn't just get that, yeah. but you got like Ori and the Blind Forest. You got games exactly. like... Uh, just, there's so many now, right? And it's, but they're great. Uh, Guacamelee, that was what I was playing oh, on yeah, for a second. One. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. Shadow Complex may be the best Xbox 360 game. Huh. It's debatable, but it's, <laughs> it's up there. It's a good one for sure. <laughs> it's it's in, it's in my top five. We'll put it that way. Um, this this episode is about Super Metroid, though. So, um, what you what, can what, do another one on Shadow Complex later? I, you know what? Yes, we should totally do a Shadow Complex episode. I would totally do that because, also, God, that that game is ten years old. Oh man, it's ten years wow. old. Unbelievable. It, yeah, it's, it's super nuts. So um, let's take a quick break because I think the next segment, that way we can just kind of like let the you know doors open up. We can just talk about you know Super Metroid and uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So stick around, hear some more music from Super Metroid. Not the CD release, but I'm sure someone was kind enough to rip the music on good hardware, I'm guessing, or emulation. So we made it all the way back to 2017. And like John was mentioning before, you, you just walk outside and you trip over Metroidvanias. You, you got, you know, new ones coming out almost, you know, every other month, you know. And if you want to get into this kind of genre, there is, you know, no uh, no limit to kind of like the, the, the consoles that you can look at. You can even, I'm sure there's even one in the end gauge or something. But uh, I want to talk about Super Metroid with you guys because this is kind of a running trend for me where I just kind of like all the way up until like 30 minutes before we're about to record, like I'm still playing the game. I'm trying to finish it. And I finished Super Metroid from start to finish for the very first time in my life this morning, right before we started recording. And it's a, it's still a pretty good ride guys. It's still a pretty good adventure. That's awesome. <laughs> well done. I'm finishing it by the way. No, it's not like, it's not, it's not like a hard game. No, but it's not that easy either. You know, there's there is a little bit of a challenge there if it's your first time, especially. I think. Well, I did. I mean, now that I don't have to worry about you know mailing out for this stuff, I did have a PDF of 
the official Nintendo's Player's Guide for Super Metroid, the complete Player's Guide of Super Metroid, straight from the pros at Nintendo. Okay, well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if I'm going to do it, like, I can't go third party. Like, I'm not going to get a Prima Guide. I'm going to get, you know, the official Nintendo ones because they, they know what's actually going on with that thing. Um, but, yeah, like, this was maybe the big thing that set out for me is there's so much more game than I thought there was. I thought this game was way shorter um, and I finished it in like six hours, but I thought there was like at least one less area because like there were areas that I guess I never really got to with even these like, you know, half-hearted playthroughs over the, uh, over the years. Um, but let's, let's talk about the start. Let's talk about the start. I'm going to go to my notes real quick and then we'll, we'll go from there because Again, you get greeted with a really good title screen, but the first thing that you got to do is you got to go to the options, right? Because you got to fix the button configuration from the start because the button configuration is completely wrong for how you would want it. <laughs> it is a little weird. It is a little strange. Um, I was playing with the default setup recently, um, and I, I still find myself like hitting the wrong button in key right. moments. It's like, ah, crap. Jump, jump um, and shoot are both in the wrong spot. Like, I think like the only thing that makes sense yeah. in the default is it's easier to sprint in than jump. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's what I did is I basically put like, if you're looking at a super Nintendo pad, I put, you know, jump on B, shoot on Y, uh, X would have been my, uh, like for for sprint and for X-ray and stuff, and then B would have, or excuse me, A would have been my my cancel button. Yeah, that's a good setup, actually. Are you that's guys moon, are it. you guys moonwalkers? Uh, right. not tremendously so. <laughs> I can I can see how that would make like scenarios where that could give you an advantage, but it's also just kind of a pain in the butt. Like when you end up uh, doing yeah. that when you don't mean to facing our direction. So I, yeah, like I, I turned it on for my playthrough, and then I like twenty minutes in, I was like, no, this is this is not happening. I'm not doing this. Yeah, um, yep. It's not necessary. It's a cool, it's a cool little gimmick, I think. It's super um, cool. Yeah, but I, but I've never really seen anyone. Although I guess I don't really watch a lot of people play Super Metroid, but <laughs> I've never seen it put to like really expert use in a way mm. that makes me think, man, I, it's not the mechanic. It's me. I need to figure out how to get better at it. Right. Uh, yeah. But cool that it's there anyway. I I turned I always turn it on I don't know why but yeah especially like towards the there's a couple fights like towards the end with those those uh, metal alien dudes that you're, you're like needing to jump all over the place and you like if you run out of missiles like you're going to be using charge shots or even in that last battle like if you're holding down the charge shot what we're talking about with the moonwalking is if you're holding down charge shot and you actually walk you know the opposite direction where you're facing you'll still be facing the way that you were facing previously but you will like Michael Jackson, you will moonwalk backwards. Um, yeah, it's kind of like strafing, I suppose, really. Right. Yeah, or totally. Like lo- locking yeah. your shot in some games. Yeah. That's a super good point. Um, but yeah, I mean, once once you get all that stuff straightened out, I think another thing that's cool uh, to point out is uh, the, the literally like the cart for U.S. and for Japan are basically identical. Like they have English and Japan language options on there. So, uh, you know, my copy of Super Metroid for years, maybe for like, I think it was one of the, like six years or something like that, I bought my copy out in Japan because like you can literally just pop it into oh, nice. Super Famicom and just set it to English and it, you're good to go. And it's also about half as much for the Super Famicom version as it is for the 
North American version. I don't even want to look at what Super Metroid goes for right now on a Super Nintendo uh, for Super Nintendo. Uh, yeah. but it's probably insane. It's, the, it's pretty dumb. It's like it's like fifty bucks for the game alone. Which Jesus, is fine. I, I mean, I, I think that's fine because it's that's affordable. Yeah, yeah, but the box and stuff you're looking almost between 150 200 bucks oh my god the u.s copy but even the japanese version now complete is upwards of 100 dollars. now have you, have you guys seen the european version in person no not in person I, i've okay so you know aware. you know then yeah yeah so kevin it's basically you know earthbound comes in that giant box with the book in it right yeah so that's exactly what they got here with uh, super metroid as well that must be and great get, for collectors. It's amazing looking. Like I, I had never seen it before, but a friend of mine actually has it, and I was just like, "Whoa!" And I think they did it with other games as well, like Terra Enigma as well. I think has that. But aren't they like super get, fragile? Like those boxes for Earthbound, aren't they like you know basically deteriorating? I don't know about the Earthbound one, but the just super because they're Metroid so one, big to store. The Super Metroid one was like a thick cardboard like material, right. like a glossy thick cardboard. It's really quite durable actually, and it's. It's just awesome to hold that gigantic Super Metroid box. I kind of want one myself, but again, the price, too much. Yeah. Well, I, I, I will say, like, you know, what's awesome is that you can also play it on the Nintendo Switch, right? On the virtual console? Not on the Switch yet, right? I'm just kidding. No, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just being an asshole. Oh, ha, 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 <laughs> yes. no. See, you got me there. The, no, you, you can, can do it on the new, the new Nintendo 3DS, I think, right? You, Which is yeah, now totally can. canceled. They discontinued that. Oh one, God, hey. just—they don't want anyone to play Super Metroid. You know what you're going to do? You're going to make you're going to get Samus Returns on 3DS, a console that is eight years old, and a console that you don't want to play games on anymore because you have a Nintendo Switch, and you will be happy about it because hey, at least we're, you know, throwing your scraps these days, folks. We give you yep. a logo. Um, so I, you know, I think one of the cool things about like this game, which is really like what sets the standard for other, you know, and I know people don't like the Metroidvania like word and stuff, but I'm just going to use it because it's easy to use, um, yep. is like, they do a really good job of teaching you the mechanics of the game in the first 30 minutes or so. Like they yes. do, uh, I mean, this is part of the, like the, you know, they don't do an abilities or anything like that, but you basically start with nothing and you have to find one thing. And then you use that one thing to get into a different area, which will give you another thing. And then you might have two areas open up and then you got to kind of check both out and you're doing lots of backtracking and back and forth. And you kind of keep you confined into two areas for a lot of the game until you pick up enough to like, I guess, you know, progress. Like there's this, this game is progression, right? And the thing that really, you know, about it back in the day is that, they forced you to learn by locking you into rooms, right? So like you get to an area and it's like, okay, you literally cannot get out until you figure out the trick to get out. And sometimes it wasn't actually that obvious. So you might be stuck in a little spot Mm -hmm. and you know, all right, there has to be a way out of here. How do I do it? And then once you figure that out, it starts to open up those possibilities in your mind where you're like, okay, well, if I could do that here, what if I do it here as well? And it gives you this sensation that you're discovering stuff rather than the developer saying, oh, just go here. You know what I mean? Right, right. And you can even cheat the game in a lot of ways, too. That's right. Um, the wall jump is something. Once you figure that out, um, then you start to learn, like, oh, well, maybe I can skip this requirement and get an item early, right? Um, I mean, that certainly happens with uh, oh, yeah. you know, repeat playthroughs, I'd say more, more likely than your first time through. But I remember figuring that out and thinking, man, like, okay, what possibilities does this open up for me now? Let's, let's talk about that for a second, because for as perfect as this game is, the controls are not super great. 
I, I will like that's probably my big thing that that is it's it's the wall jumping which sucks because it doesn't feel intuitive at all because you have to like like even when I like said up oh, I'm at this point every time I play through this game at this point it's gonna take me like 20 minutes to get up this little you know shaft because of how bad the wall jump is because you should literally just like I think like Guacamole does this really well. We we're just like jumping from back and forth and it's just like, it feels good where this you're actually like jumping to the wall. Then you need to press away from the wall, then hit jump. Like you don't do it at the the same time. And it's not like something where in Ninja got in where you can at least like stick to the wall for a second and jump back and forth. Right. Like you need to do this very unique timing specifically for this game. And it's the same thing for the, it's not as bad, but the, um, which it's the uh, is it the gravity jump? Uh, hold on, I wrote this down. Uh, Where you like sort of tap the button to keep yeah. spinning up? Uh, yeah. But see, like the wall jump though, that's not like an official um, maneuver in the game. Like I, I don't remember there being any puzzles that forced you to use that. In my mind, that was always sort of an advanced technique. Yeah. That to find was, like secret stuff. It's to find secret stuff to get out of situations um, through skill rather than observation. Yeah, um, and I don't, I don't. Put it. I'm not quite sure if it was. I mean, it had to have been intentional because it's got that little, you know, those couple frames of animation where mm-hmm. she pushes off the wall. But, but yeah, like I'm actually looking at a PDF of the manual right now, and and it's never mentioned once. Um, oh, no way. In there. Right. Yeah. So that that's kind of what I was suggesting earlier was like when I discovered that it was sort of like you know we were talking about um, finding things that maybe. You know, you find like you think you're discovering it, not that like it, it was right. been there all along waiting for you. That's how I felt with the wall jump. Like it was this revelation that I thought, like, look what I've done. Well, <laughs> you know, I this, will this say thing that's not described. It's it's in the official Nintendo Player's Guide. Uh, oh yeah, the three <laughs> the three Etacoons will show Samus how to do the wall jump, also known as the triangle jump. Uh, when you spin jump and hit the wall, wait a split second. See, I didn't have the player's guide back then. If I knew that, it would just be different. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> when, when, uh, when you spin jump and hit the wall, wait a split second and then press the control pad in the opposite direction. Just as you are pressing the control pad the other way, press the jump button. That's not... Oh, God. Uh, Samus will appear to, quote, squat on the wall and then jump out from it. Uh, thank the Etacoons later. You know, I don't the remember thing, seeing them, huh? No, I, I have seen them. I saw them on my last playthrough where they actually kind of, you run to that yeah, giant little, like, vertical like, shaft it, yeah. and they, they sort of do it for you. And you're like, oh, all right, okay. I guess I need to emulate this. But what I think is uh, tricky about the wall jump now is that uh, it plays best on a CRT, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so, so precise that if you have like that extra input leg, like yeah, it's like it really makes it harder to hit. So that's kind of uh, an issue playing it on modern hardware, I think. Yeah, I was using the uh, the 8-bit do uh, wireless controller at first, playing through a FrameMeister, um, and I had to switch to a hardwired yep. controller just yep. to get exactly. that little extra, you know, timing. Um, yeah, but in general, Whoa. the controls in this game are a little strange. I will definitely agree with you there, oh, Kevin. I, I should have. Oh man, I wish I had this guy. Do you guys know about the Crystal Flash? I know of it where you recover your health. Yeah. Okay. So this top secret, I'm not just going to, I swear for the folks listening, I'm not just going (laughs) to read the the player's guide, but listen to this. If if you're going to play through this game, this top secret technique only works under certain conditions. You can refill the energy in all of your energy tanks, not reserve tanks, by meeting these conditions. You must have 29 or fewer units of energy remaining, plus you must have 10 or more missiles, 
10 or more super missiles. Yeah, and 11 or more power bombs. Select the power bomb icon morph. Press and hold the L and R and shoot buttons while holding down on the control uh, control pad. Samus will uh, constructively absorb the power of the detonation, and this and it looks like you know the animation when she loses all of her health and she kind of like explode her suit explodes. Yep. Huh. God, well, this, this I'm, I'm shocked. I didn't know about that. <laughs> but because you didn't have the guide, because they're putting all I these guess, secrets yeah. in here. Because you, you only got you got to look at the top secret section of Nintendo Power, or be some rich kid that can afford the player's guide. Your games are sixty dollars. Can't afford twenty bucks for a guide. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> and they wonder why. Oh, never mind. All right. Um. So, anyways, uh, you know. This is this is another thing the game is known for. It's known for the the incredible atmosphere, and I think like that's one of the things that stands out most for me is you know the gameplay is really cool, but it's just like a really cool environment to to be around because I just like I love the design of of Samus, the suits, the weapons, the 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 enemies, um, the the environments, and then pairing that along with you know this this really like I wouldn't say it's like the best soundtrack on the console, but is is one of the best soundtracks on the this Super Nintendo, specifically like the tracks that you're hearing in this episode, those are those are obviously my favorite. But um, there's some really incredible, like moody music uh, in Super Metroid. Mm-hmm. But I would even say like maybe even Metroid Two is kind of a little bit better if you can if you're not you know it's that apples to oranges kind of thing. But it's 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 yeah. it's pretty good. Um, I mean, yeah, the atmosphere in Super Metroid is one of its greatest strengths, and the soundtrack absolutely reinforces. The sort of eerie, I mean, the start of the game, I can't think of any other Nintendo game that begins with corpses. Yeah, right. <laughs> bleeding, oh, yeah. bleeding corpses on <laughs> yeah, the title screen. <laughs> and, then, and then it kicks into this, you know, you know, very droning, uh, atmospheric uh, stuff. I mean, that every time I, I pick up Super Metroid again, I'm always taken aback by I, what I would consider a risk uh, that they took, um, you know, setting the, the mood for this game. It may be, like, can you think of a better a track screen on the Super Nintendo like that is telling the story like that on there? No, I mean it, it raises so many questions. I mean it, it is it's such a compelling snapshot of what you have to look forward to, and especially if you had played um, the original Metroid, which yeah. was somewhat benign in its presentation. This this was just it a graduated form of sci-fi on. On a Nintendo console, I mean, we'd seen stuff like on PC that had been dark, you know, forever. Right. Um, but yeah, th- this was shocking, and the soundtrack was an excellent facet of that that whole, uh, you know, aspect of the game. And like such a continuation of the story, especially from like one to two, got oh, a little yeah. bit more in depth into the story, and then you know, really picking up right up. You're like literally picking up right after two when you go into three like that kind of cohesiveness was not something that was really seen in like you didn't see that from castlevania one two to three you didn't see that in like a lot of the the big franchises true out there yeah and the story is one that you i mean obviously they they dole out some stuff in the beginning but that's that's the only resource you have to really get the context of what's happening and then the rest of the game you are defining the story through your actions Right. Um, I mean, like any video game, I suppose. But like you know, it, the game isn't overtly trying to tell you, okay, this is what's happening right now. This is where you are and what you're doing. It's, I mean, you kind of 
make it up in your head a little bit as you go about these things. And um, even just, you know, having the freedom to hear, like, what is a crocodile? Where did this thing come from? How, like, what, what planet am I on that can support all of this? Right. What other dangers are out there? Yeah. And it's kind of, I, I, I think they tell really well through visual storytelling. Like when you yeah. go into like the abandoned ship for the first time and the power's yeah. off, it right. kind of has this creepy vibe, you know, you're wandering through there wondering, okay, what happened here? And just like the way everything escalates and it really works well in this case. It's yeah. such a mix of genres because you're like, you're going into it and you're like, oh man, there's like this, it looks like an action game. What is it? It's going to be like Contra or something like that. Or no, <laughs> no, it's like an adventure game. No, it's actually like kind of a horror game in, in some aspects of it. Like I definitely are getting like in, in some parts where there's, you know, like whether it's the the ship area or whether it is um, just like certain parts that are really dark and, and quiet, like towards the end of the game where you're seeing like these dilapidated areas where like the, like the music's not on, like it's just like quiet and you're just kind of walking right. through these these kind of ruins, and then it's like it's, it's like mystery. It's it's that atmosphere that I think is is something that was really an experiment on this kind of this hardware at this time where you're seeing it probably a lot more on, on the PC, but not so much on the, you know, the home, the home consoles. Uh, like the only thing I can really think of outside of that is like Septetrion, which had much like from human entertainment that, that did much. It was human, right? That, that made that game. You guys know what I'm talking about? Which game? Uh, Septetrion. It was also. Um, oh, oh yes, the the game where you're yeah, yeah you're trying to get out of the boat that's sinking. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're in a you're in a yeah oh, a flipped yeah, over right. uh, a capsized boat, uh, and you have to try right. to like make it up. That like that that game. You want to guys want to look at a cool game? Go check out. Is, is that the Japanese name for it? Is that the? Uh, so yeah, in America it's called SOS. There SOS. Are two. There are two SOS games. <laughs> um, on Super Nintendo, so make sure you find the right one. It's got uh, sort of like a you know a dark seascape with a a cruise ship um, on, on the cover art. Uh, but in Japan, it's a you know, there's a very very good episode of Game Center X. That's how I heard about uh, it. Where he, where he plays through <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. That's how I found it. And then I was very shocked to see that there was a U.S. release because um, the game is super unique and very totally. very interesting. Um, yeah, and I wish we could have gotten the firemen out here too, though. God, come on, human. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I think, yeah, and this, this is like something I wanted to go back to it in this discussion is like there is a constant like, you know, momentum forward until until you get stuck, until you get stuck into an area, which might happen for a little bit, but potentially like, you know, especially in 2017, like all it takes is going to your phone and like typing up the area that you're in yeah. or the item that you need, and then you can get back on track so it's 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 not so bad but like if you get into a really solid momentum like you're you're finding e-takes you're finding new abilities you're able to sprint you're able to do you know higher jumps you're able to now you know grapple on on certain parts of of the wall or like that that i think i I don't know because i'm not like a diehard like metroid fan but it is that what like a lot of the fans of the franchise is that what is kind of like the big the big thing that they love is just like that constant progression and leveling up, even though they have to make a reason every single time for why Samus cannot have any of her abilities at the start of the game. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's that sense of uh, the rewarding sense that you get from essentially making your way through something and gaining all these powers and the exploration. Uh, It's like a sense of discovery there that you just don't see in a lot of other games. And it's combined with the atmospheric and the soundtrack 
And it's just when you combine everything together into that complete package, it just creates something that's very compelling that you just want to play. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's always something new to learn. There's always something exactly. new to discover. I mean, you, you, there's there's never really a dull moment. Um, no, it's you, true. Yeah, like th- throughout the entire course of the game, you are powering up in ways that you just never really expected or saw coming. Um, it's definitely a treat, to, you know, to find that uh, that wave beam or to get the gravity suit, you know, whatever. Like those those things, just like again, it kind of goes back to when you discover you know certain tricks in the game. It's just like you get this new item and I need to rethink every place I've been, yeah, and and every strategy that I've developed now because things are different. Like, are, and like, you, are there any blue and, squares that like there's just like one blue square open that? Oh yeah, I couldn't get there, but now that I got this, oh, I can go back and I can now get to that thing, and I, like that might open up a whole another area, or might just like open up to, like an e tank or something like that. And that is like it's badass progression because every single time you're feeling like. Oh man, now I can get there. Now I can get there, and like you're just like racing back to try to like go back to this area. And I, I that I mean, for me, that was one of the big driving points. But I feel like even when you get stuck in the game, you still get a sense of um, oh geez, sorry about that. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a doorbell. But yes, so even when you get stuck in the game, there's like this sense of like being trapped in an area so you become very familiar with your surroundings right so you really learn it and i feel like you gain sort of a relationship with those individual areas of the Mm. map over time and then when you finally break free and you start to explore beyond those bounds you know you have that sense of freedom but you'll you never really forget those moments where you were like trapped in this one zone trying to figure out how to proceed and it sort of builds this like uh, overall, um, I guess, again, like a relationship with the map mm. and all the different pieces. So when you look back at the map as a whole, it's like, okay, I remember being over there. That was a really cool part. Or, yeah, I was really frustrated there, but, you know, got through it. And I think that's part of it. It's those peaks and valleys of you're getting stuck, but then you figure it out and you're pushing on and getting new abilities. But then, okay, you get stuck again. And it's just that constant up and down. You're not just doing the same thing for too long. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think like the maybe it's like more the first half is much more like running all over the place and backtracking and stuff like that. But I think there's a certain point. It's probably it's it's closer to after the after the the um, abandoned ship where it becomes a lot more linear. Um, yeah, that's true. The, maybe like the last twenty percent of the game, like I found like man, I'm just kind of moving forward. Like I'm not doing any backtracking and stuff like that. I'm sure that I could have and found more, you know, E-tanks and stuff like that. I, I shouldn't be, but that's Mega Man, but uh, like energy tanks. And, you know, I found that I was kind of just pretty much making my way to uh, the final boss until, you know, there was this one spot, which I ended up having a look up online. Like this is something that is different than any other spot in the game, which you have your X-ray ability. But there is a point, um, like kind of after a boss battle, where you're kind of like going back up and you're working your way around, and then like, oh well, there's no way to get back to where I wanted to go because it's now covered in this like acid lava that will kill me if I try to go back the way that I came. And like, what what am I supposed to do? So now there's just like an invisible wall that like doesn't show up on the X-ray scope, but is just invisible you just have to walk through it like how are you supposed <laughs> oh, to yeah. do that it's just like tra- pressing against the wall yeah but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah because like what like i'm bombing everywhere like i'm trying to figure out where to go is is literally like the equivalent of kneeling down and waiting five seconds for a damn tornado to come pick me up and take me somewhere <laughs> else like that's that was kind of like the the big thing that 
bugged me towards towards the end. But um, let's talk let's talk about that that ending because I don't know, like on the Super Nintendo, like there's some really fantastic like final boss battles, final endings. You look at oh, a link to the past, or even look at Super Mario World and for Super Metroid. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I'm sure also with you know the Final Fantasy and Super Mario RPGs like Chrono Triggers, um, this is a hell of a final encounter. Um, yeah, and it and, and it tells an incredible story through the 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 visuals of the game. Um, I don't know, like for for you, John, like you are you able to remember back to when you kind of beat it the first time, like what that was like? Oh, geez, the first time. I mean, yeah, I do remember it because. As as a big fan of Metroid Two, it was kind of like this moment of like, oh, it's it's yeah. that Metroid, right? Like no way, like they actually brought it back, and of course, you know, I was also like just blown away by how big the the actual last boss was. Like it was huge for the Super NES and all those effects going on, and then when you finally take her out, and then you're doing these sort of the escape sequence again, it's just like this perfect way to cap off the game with like a sense of adrenaline and. Yeah, it was extremely memorable, and I think it still holds up really well even today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go out the way you came in, right? But then with <laughs> exactly. everything that you've got <laughs> uh, after that, um, it's, yeah, an incredible way to cap off um, a game that is amazing up until that point, but I think is far better because of the way it ends. It's Good time. It's it's uh like I, I don't think this is a bad word, but I think there's like lots of fan service right in this in this game, which is probably why it also means so much to fans of the franchise because th- those fans probably also played one. They probably also played two. And when you're seeing like these callbacks, whether it be to the start of the game, whether it is like you know similar platforms to what you saw on the original Metroid as you're making that escape, which only show up there, but not in the rest of the game. Um, it is that Metroid from Metroid two that is coming back to, you know, save your butt in supercharge you, uh, for, yep. for that final battle. And also like, you know, it is, you know, I, I understand getting emotional about like, oh man, like the thing sacrificed itself to, to save me. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a, a really big deal. And then just like the feeling like, a, like a superhero or like a huge badass yeah. by having this overpowered gun and there's nothing this you know mother brain can do about it like i'm just dumping into this head <laughs> his head's like firing back and forth and like can they cannot t- even take the the blast from that that super beam and then you know like any kind of good adventure that takes place in space you're ex- escaping the planet just as it explodes behind you um and, they say, and of course, it caps it off with all that uh, the mode seven uh, kind of yeah. effect, or which uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the tech that's totally. in the game actually, because I think it's one of the more impressive Super NES games out there because it really exploits the hardware. It's so colorful that's, that's, too. Like I just want yeah, to say right? that too. Like it just it is like it is it's a joy to just Beautiful. look at the like stills of this game because it's just like how like it it's so friggin' Super Nintendo <laughs> like. <laughs> that's the thing though is uh they actually use the super nes in ways that other platforms at the time really couldn't match up to and i mean all of the other platforms you couldn't do this kind of game on a 3do a jaguar hmm. you couldn't you definitely can't do this on the genesis the, specifically the type of visuals so mainly they really really exploit the transparency layer on the super nes you probably notice that a lot but 
you know, they have the water effects in there, but Sand also things like, like they just apply like a simple gradient where it's just like a color gradient and then they make it transparent and then they place it in front of the tile work. So you get this sort of like weird colored atmospheric haze in the air. You know what I mean? It's almost like they were showing off like in this game. Like yeah. it was just like the best of what Nintendo was able to do before they had to throw in a Super FX chip. Exactly. And then like, you know, when you use the uh, the X-ray beam or when you first get the morph ball at the very beginning, that little light comes on. They sort of have like the transparent sort of scaled uh, triangular cone there, which you'll notice, by the way, when you activate the X-ray, if you're standing in transparent water or something like that, it disables transparency temporarily because it can only do one transparent layer at a time. So it's kind of a, an interesting trick there they had to do to get around those limitations. So, and then, you know, it's just, uh, obviously you mentioned the music before, but one of the interesting things there is, is they really put a lot of effort into programming this and using unique samples to Metroid three mm. or super Metroid. Whereas, you know, the SNES had sort of a, a library of default samples. So a lot of games ended up sounding really similar. I mean, you all know the SNES guitar riff, right? Yeah. It's just like the generic sound or like some of the certain drums you hear everywhere, Whereas like Super Metroid and then, you know, games like Donkey Kong Country, of course, they had a lot of unique samples crafted specifically to take advantage of the sound chip. Mm. And the fact that it uses, it's only like 32 kilohertz sampling rate. So it's, you know, it's a little bit muffled sounding and they kind of use that to the advantage to create this sort of like very soft ambient sound in the background, I think. And it's, you know, it really works well. Plus all the the scaling of, you know, uh, the bosses and stuff and the ships and, you know, the escape sequence, how they actually able to use sort of mode seven there to gently rock the entire map left and right while putting a transparent like color layer in front of that to give the, the sense of like, you know, lights flashing all around you. Mm. I mean, it's all kind of stuff that you really couldn't do exactly like that on like a Sega Genesis. I mean, you could probably come up with some similar ideas, but you know, using all those transparency layers and the full, you know, color palette capabilities of the system, I think it really created something that looks very different from any other game available at that time. So when your friend was shoving a 32X in your face, you'd be like, dude, I'm good. I got Super Metroid. No problem. Yeah, no. It, and, uh, you know, 32X actually could not handle this game, truthfully. <laughs> See, Greg Stewart? It's not, Sorry, it's just not, like, <laughs> it doesn't even have hard hardware capabilities for like you know doing tile maps and sprites. I mean, it's really slow with that kind of operation. So yeah, the Super NES pretty good with this stuff. Very unique hardware for the time. Can I say something crazy? I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna do it. Super Nintendo is pretty good console. It is it has a good it has a good <laughs> library. And it really does. It it like might be one of the best libraries in the history of games. Oh, I think sure. there's no question about that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, it's no <laughs> Neo Geo Pocket Color because, like, every game on that thing was a nine out of ten. Like, it was just nines and tens on Neo Geo Pocket Color. So, if we're talking about, you know, just you know, overall quality of the the library, Neo Geo Pocket Color is probably a little bit. I mean, second mission, technical achievement. Well, yeah, there's um, good stuff on there. Yeah. When when are we getting the Digital Foundry retro episode on the Neo Geo Pocket Color and its incredible library of games? Hey, you know what? If I can get some nice video output from my Neo Geo Pocket Colors, then That's I would true. absolutely do an episode on it. I am planning something for Game Boy, so nice. what better way to follow that up than with the Neo Geo Pocket Color episode? Nice. I I, uh, I am the creator 
of the NeoGAF thread, the official Neo Geo Pocket Color thread that has uh, grown extensively over the years. Uh, so if you guys ever need any Neo, uh, Neo Geo Pocket Color information, you can jump on there because I went through a little bit of a phase where I got obsessed and tried to <laughs> complete the collection. Um, all right, well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's wrap up. We'll come back for, for one more uh, segment before we wrap up, and uh, then we'll get going. They'll allow us to put some more Super Metroid music in there right now. Stick around. We'll be right back. going to do it uh for this episode but i think it's always great you know we're, we just get a little bit of uh, like a high high we just gotta we need to cool down a little bit uh before we do uh wrap up and don't forget there's going to be uh there's a 20 minute segment for patrons afterwards we're talking about some weird like arcade hardware that's coming up out of china right now that you can hook up to your tv we're talking about retro pie stuff um so hang out for that. If you're a Patreon supporter, it means a lot. Thank you so much. And if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash back in my play. Starting at five bucks a month, you get stuff like that. You get back in my play radio. Those have been uh, a real success. That's probably some of them going to double the production of because that seems to be what people are really loving about it. And of course, back in my play live, uh, which we do every single month. And John was on an episode last month. It was an awesome discussion that we had on there so you're missing a lot of back my play if you're not a patreon supporter so if you do uh want to support the show and also get a lot yourself uh go to patreon.com slash back my play take a couple seconds to uh to sign up uh but before we do go uh i want to talk with you guys i know we talked briefly about what you got going on john but again you've been doing lots of awesome stuff at digital foundry retro um what was it last week what what did you have last week Oh, I did one on Soul Reaver. That's right. So it was a pretty long episode. I did a lot of research and talking with people about that one. With some extras. Yeah, that that was a – I'm occasionally trying to do uh, some little podcast extras in there just to add some value with, you know, know, just the people I'm talking with. If they can't be in the episode, which 
I'm experimenting with as well. May as well do something else like that. Totally. Uh, yeah, and if you guys haven't been checking this series out, like what John basically does is, especially for you know games that went across platforms, is kind of looking at you know the differences in the games across platforms, and also just you know development history stuff and you know, what these developers were trying to do technically with the hardware to you know match as best. Like a lot of times, like it would be an arcade port or something like that. Um, but but you know obviously you did you did Doom, you did Duke Nukem. Like another great one was well both Quake and Duke Nukem 3D across the the home consoles yep. and PCs just because like I'm raising my hand I'm a Duke Nukem 64 guy that's how I play that game <laughs> um, so it's just really cool to see like that and the the Saturn version which is really unique um, I'm kind of curious well, like, there's a Metroid Prime episode that's so, right um, we're talking Metroid yeah you get some more Metroid fixing over at uh, Digital Foundry um, but I'm kind of curious like what what have been like your favorite episodes to I guess like your favorite episodes to kind of research and put together because those aren't always going to be like the most downloaded or most viewed ones, but I'm kind of, you know, curious what has been like the yeah. most fun to put together. Well, I really enjoyed doing the Halo one episode earlier this year yeah. just because there's a lot of history there. And I was happy to see that all of my research kind of came up right when Waypoint did that right. incredibly awesome article on Halo. I kind of read through that after, way after the fact. I was like, all right, I got my ducks in a row here. Exactly. Even yeah. though I couldn't go on for, you know, the three or four hours it would take to cover all of that. But then also uh, I really enjoyed doing that Metal Gear Solid 2 episode just because there's so much really good media out there available. So I was pouring through all the old DVDs. I have the trailer DVD. E3 you know, trailers. Some of the old media from E3. Like, you know, having the original source at the at the original quality is really cool. And just it was like, wow, okay. I forgot about how amazing some of this stuff was. Plus – you know, they actually released that document disc with all the debug stuff on there. You can go go through the maps, which who who does that? Nobody. It's really. ridiculous. That's the only time I've seen that. So yeah, that those are some of my favorites. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed looking back at Ridge Racer Five and Ridge Racer Four. That was you know that that one did all right, but that was definitely one of the ones I really enjoyed looking at because I do love those games. Always like to sing the praises of Ridge Racer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ridge Racer Type Four is like. It, kind of like That's pilot it. wings in the way that it that it handles oh, yeah. <laughs> its story. Like I, I love that game. That is it's so good. Fun. It's so, so good. good, and it still <laughs> it still plays really well too. It does. Uh, yeah, and it looks nice too. It's got that sense of style and the the yep. music, and it's just such a chill out kind of game. Can I get that on the Vita? Yeah, absolutely. Type four is. I'm pretty sure it's out there. All right, I I, I kind of want to like. I almost want to do a little like feature analysis, just something fun um, about how that compares to pilot wings. Cause that <laughs> do it. Do I, it. I, I don't know if you're with me, but like that, that really is like such a, it had to have been an inspiration for the way they handled that game. Yeah. Like the, you're right. All the interstitial dialogue stuff. It's just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Even the way it was presented too. I love it. <laughs> Well, you guys can uh, check those out. Uh, Digital Foundry has an extensive YouTube channel on there, and there's a playlist with all the uh, retro stuff on there. That's how I like to uh, view that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I've actually been going back and rewatching some of the old stuff too, like just, again, just because, again, you do a really good job of just breaking all this stuff down. And it's just just fun because it's like it's literally like also bringing up kind of like the discussions we were having before these games were coming up like yo man this game's going to be able to do this and like no other game's been able to do it before and it's just like it's just so crazy to go like even through the the pre-release like information for for this stuff and then how it ended up 
actually coming together. It's nuts. Yeah, we can actually have a microscopic, microscopic view now, really, right? Like yeah. pulling out the wireframes and the map data and the sound data. You know, you yeah, can and actually you, you compare tear these games apart. <laughs> yeah, you can really see, like, all right, was it actually better or not? You can really, really see it for sure now. And you know, I think that's cool. It's like archaeology of old games almost. Yeah, I, and again, I'm I'm gonna be excited to see what both of you guys have to say about the new Super Nintendo. A classic edition to see. Of course, I'll be reviewing it. Good, um, because to see how that stuff holds up. I know we had some sound problems with the NES Classic Edition, and hopefully mm-hmm. Nintendo is able to, you know, tighten up the, you know, the boards or whatever they're putting into those things to make sure the emulation is better. And also, then uh, finally taking a look at Star Fox Two, which is going to be great to see that in final form. Hopefully, it runs better than ten frames per second, like Star Fox One. Um, yeah. <laughs> Peter, what do you got going on over at GameSpot.com? Uh, things are a little bit slow right now. Um, uh, when is this episode going to go live? Um, uh, how about how about Friday? Oh, later this week? Yeah. Oh, well, then in that case, uh, I just finished playing Pyre, the new... Oh, no, Peter, break it up. Transistor. No. Okay. We're losing you. Yeah, I, th- I think we got you back uh, a little bit now. Got me back? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, so I currently finished up a review of Pyre. Uh, it's the new game from uh, Supergiant Games. The oh, team, yeah. Uh, Bastion and right. A incredible game really did not Oh, no. Peter, your, your internet died just as we finished the episode. <laughs> <laughs> We, we, we heard you. We heard you. You're reviewing Pyre. Is it good? It is very good. It is very very good. Uh, I was surprised how much I liked it. I played third first uh, because I just didn't want to stop. Um, it mixes storytelling and introduces a sport that is part basketball, part football. What? Um, or and blitzball? It, I know. No, I'm just kidding. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, it just it all works incredibly well, and it's just a it's it's beautiful to look at, to listen to, and the characters are all written um, almost impeccably. Like I, I, I shocked how how good this uh, pyre is from beginning to end. Fantastic. Um, otherwise, let's see. So it's going to go up twenty eighth. Okay, so by now I have checked out um, <laughs> at at games. Uh, Sega Genesis HDMI. Oh, right. It's not very good. Surprise! <laughs> I know. Surprise at all. Yeah. No, I, nor am I. But, you know, so many people get excited based off of uh, you know, the hype from the NES Classic. They saw these things and thought, oh, wait, here's it comes the Genesis version. Nope. Really bad did frame they, rates. Did they screw up the sound again? Oh yeah, the sound is great. of course pa- painful to listen to. How can Sega uh, not figure out how to do their it's Genesis not, not sound Sega. on everything that they put Sega. out? <laughs> oh, whatever. That's the thing. It's not Sega. Everyone thinks that this is a Sega product. It well, is, then it stop be. licensing your stuff out like that because you get to treat your stuff like again, like you saw it on the iPhone. You know, you saw it in the the other hardware. Like the only collection that I've seen do it really well is the stuff like. And that not even perfect, but really well has been on the PC and also the the Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection. Yeah, but I mean, you got to remember that the, that the Genesis uses an FM synthesis chip, which is super analog. And even amongst the different real Genesis consoles, you get a huge variation in sound quality, right? So 
Yep. Emulating that chip is not easy to do. <laughs> oh, give a shit! It's 2017. Come on, give me, give me like good Genesis music. I have a, I have a, I have a, you know, Xbox One or PlayStation Four with amazing like power behind it. I got. I mean, you should be able to. Oh, never mind. You don't have the power it. of the Sega Genesis in there, though. That's the thing. <laughs> I don't. That's why, like, if there's one piece of hardware I'm going to hold on to, it's a Sega Genesis because it was the first one with high definition graphics. You're right. It says says it right <laughs> on the hardware. It says it's in, like, built into the mold. It says high definition graphics, uh, with its awesome, gross component output. Oh God. Um, all right. So, yeah, com- composite. Mean? Sorry. Yeah, my fault. Um, at least it does so, RGB yeah. out of the box. Would, uh, I would stay away from the at games Genesis. The 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 one thing about it that is like kind of cool is that it's an HDMI Genesis that does have support for cartridges. Like you can put Whoa. games in from any region. That's cool. But yeah, but I mean, you could also do that with you know a Retron Five. You could do it with mm, the yeah. um, the Game Freak. I mean, those are more expensive solutions. But they're they're better than this thing. That's for damn sure. It seems like there isn't a market out there, or maybe there is, but there's no one making it because there's been you know these these kind of like somewhat independent people out there that have been putting together things like incredible NES hardware that is five hundred dollars. That is you know does incredible oh, yeah. job outputting stuff. It is like literally usually using using uh, authentic silicone or something that is able to at least replicate it on a chip. But there doesn't seem to be either an option or uh, a market or someone out there that wants to, you know, sell a four hundred dollar Sega Genesis like console so you can play your old Genesis games. Well, the the trick is is that the FPGAs that power the Analog NT Mini, which you were describing as the five hundred dollar mm-hmm. NES solution, um, those are it requires a lot of expertise to really handle those properly and to get an FPGA big enough to handle a 16-bit system um, because it is almost about the physical size of yep. the FPGA and what, how many um, basically like little switches it has that can mm-hmm. be turned into different things. And the cost and the development just isn't quite there yet. Come on, Kev, Tris. Let's kickstart this. is working on a 16-bit iteration right. of his FPGA, but that's still, you know, <laughs> not, right. that's not available yet. No. But you're right. Uh, the Zimba 3000, I believe he's calling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, um, but Analog uh, has said to me, you know, in emails, uh, oh God, I'm, the guy's name's escaping me, uh, Chris, 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 Chris yeah. Tabor. Yeah, he, you know, he's always teasing, like, oh, there's something big coming, you know, just down the road, like, you know, stay tuned. So we'll see. He's relying on Kebtris, though. Um, they, that is That's the best person to rely on these days for this stuff, I think. He's really oh, good. Uh, yeah, and if you need any cryogenics work as well apparently that's his bag <laughs> sweet that's what <laughs> that's what he does professionally or did professionally for a while amazing yeah well that's oh maybe uh yeah i think that's what we'll all do is we'll just wait on captures to to perfect all this stuff uh in the meantime you know again i i've become i know this is like you know shouldn't be said but I'm really digging. I played Super Metroid all the way through on the Retro Pie, and it was an incredible experience. And yeah, I got to use some save states in some uh, hard spots, which was cool. Uh, and oh, yeah. also, you know, again, like hooking it up to a 27 inch 4K monitor, the games look insanely good on it. Uh, so you can always do that, especially if, you know, we talk about it a lot more in the next segment. But if you're one of those folks that is not able to procure a Super NES Classic Edition, 
spend 45 minutes and spend $60, get a RetroPie, and you'll have as good of an experience as I'm sure that hardware is going to give you. You can get really good controllers from 8-BitDo, and you can also put any game that you want on it. It's a really <laughs> good experience. And like, also, like I will say, you know, with the community out there for emulation and stuff, like they've also put together XML files. So when you put these games on that console, you get the box art, you get the history, you get the developer, the publisher, the release date, you get all this stuff on there. Like it is a really good experience. And again, it's like 60 bucks. Uh, give it a shot. And it's just a fun experiment to, to mess around with. Well, I think that's where we should wrap it up because uh, I'm not going to risk any more discussion with Peter's internet and it's been great so far. And I think people are ready to maybe get outside or maybe shut this off and play some super Metroid. But uh, I want to thank everyone so much for tuning in this week. Again, uh, we'll be back. I think it's going to be next week that I'm going to have uh, Mark McDonald and Christian Boyer on to talk about the uh, release and the, uh, the, I guess the, what you call it? Just kind of the, God, I wrote it. I have a, re- I have a really good title for this thing. Um, kind of the release and the like a retrospective on the original Xbox. And then after that, we're going to be doing Panzer Dragoon Orta, which will include the interview uh, with the, I think it is the producer of Panzer Dragoon Orta that Ryan got out in Tokyo. So when we leave, I always like to kind of wrap things up by saying, hey, John. Where can people check out your stuff and uh, where can they follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Dark1X and I am over on Eurogamer.net, the Digital Foundry section or YouTube.com slash Digital Foundry. Are you, late, are you allowed to talk about what you're working on like today? Well, I mean, I'm working on that 32X thing, but yeah. uh, I'm actually working on something else that uh, I'm not sure I can talk about yet, but uh, we have a cool project in the works that'll probably go up in the next week or two. Secrets. So should be cool. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what you do by capturing every game for the 32X. Oh, yeah, that's what I was doing this morning. I got literally <sighs> every cartridge game captured, and now I just need to do this CD32X games. It's gross. I can't have... We should edit that part out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cool to see, but as someone that has played you know, some 32X games, I don't know what the point of owning that hardware is. I just don't... I don't know unless you're playing like Night Trap 32X CD on it. Like it just... Well, if you want 36 great holes of golf... No, uh, I don't. It's your best... Your, well, like, what? All <laughs> no. right. I mean, it's NBA Jam is good on the 32X, right? Yeah. Hey, it's got Afterburner 2 and Space Harrier. That's true. It has Afterburner 2. version of Virtua Racing. And, uh, I mean, Tempo is kind of cool. Do you want to play Virtua Racing in 2017? Yeah. Okay. Jeez. John, you're the best. Um, (laughs) Peter, where can people check your stuff out and uh, anything that they should keep an eye out for? up on uh, GameSpot.com in the, the coming days. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at PC Brown, And yeah, I uh, manage reviews at GameSpot. So every review that goes up on the site goes through me. I don't write them all, but I do write some on occasion. Uh, yeah, the Pyre review is up now. And uh, I don't know. Maybe the next thing I'll tackle is Sonic Mania uh, later That's in right. August. Oh, man, yeah. that's soon. Um, I'm, I'm gonna put in. I'm gonna put in a, a reader request. I I, I want to see. I want to see CBS give you a, a fat budget for some more retro gaming stuff. And I and I still want Peter Brown teaches tactics. I want to see that game so I can learn <laughs> how to play. 
get Brown's favorite game, Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy Tactics, and that, that way we could actually do an episode on it. You know, I, Mike Mahardy is a coworker of mine, and he XCOM 2 is like one of his favorite games yes! ever. He, he claims that he will start t- Final Fantasy Tactics someday. You guys uh, could do a video series on that. Come on. Maybe I could, yeah. Maybe I could show him the way. Yes, I will, uh, I will watch that. I will, I will share I will it. I want to learn it. <laughs> do it. All right. Well, we won't put any more stress on the, uh, the budgetary uh, allotment at CBS today. But uh, what we will say is thank you so much for, for tuning in. You can check out backinmyplay.com for all the past episodes. Thank you so much to the Patreons out there. Again, you got another segment coming in a second. And uh, again, just thank you for everyone for, for tuning in, sharing the show. I like that this is your favorite spot to get some some retro game discussion. So thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Take care.